I find it a little difficult to say what the subject matter is going to be because it's too fundamental to give it a title. I'm going to talk about what there is. See, I'm a philosopher and I'm not going to argue very much because if you don't argue with me, I don't know what I think. So if we argue, I say thank you because though going to the courtesy of your taking a different point of view, I understand what I mean. Hello and welcome to The Last Turtle Podcast. Today I'm delighted to bring you a conversation with Vincent Horn. Vincent Horn is a meditation teacher and one of the co-founders of Buddhist Geeks, which originally started as a podcast. Um, in fact, it's one of the first podcasts I've ever listened to when I was uh, just starting out and discovering the thing that is podcasts. It turned into many things since uh, they've done the Buddhist Geeks conference and an online community and a teaching platform and it has gone through many iterations and now back as a podcast itself. Vincent currently teaches online at meditate.io which he created with his wife Emily and he's one of those fascinating people who are doing a lot of things and a sort of jack of all trades. We get into a lot of things in this conversation. We start out with what might be a definition of meditation if one can define it in a strict way. We talk about teaching in a modern language in a modern context and what Buddhism looks like in the 21st century so to speak. We talk about psychedelics and cryptocurrency. We get into a lot of things. We really cover the spectrum and it's one of those episodes with a ton of show notes. So I highly recommend taking a glance at the show notes at lastturtle.com slash six. So without further ado, I give you Vincent Horn. Well, I think I think one of the things I wanted to tell you uh, right off the bat is that there's something about how you handle yourself in public and in social media that I really appreciate. It's refreshing and I wanted to encourage it, you know, more in you and, and then in others. So I wanted to point it out. So one thing is that you seem to always, in in public, revisit your own sort of assumptions, opinions. You, you know, hopefully we all sort of progress and evolve and change our perspectives, but you do a lot of it in public and you don't seem to be sort of shy about saying, well, I used to think about it this way and now I'm thinking about it this way, where there is such a common thing where people would just have to stick to what they believed or what they said and so I think by doing that, not only do I enjoy it, but um, it's sort of giving, I feel like it giving me to some degree permission to do the same, which I've always wanted to do. But there is a, an element that resists that. May not be entirely dumb element either. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It gets you, it gets you into trouble, I'm sure. No, but there's, there's another aspect to it, which is, the fact that you're one of the few voices I see that at least the ones that I follow, of course, we have our own bubbles, but um, that is still valuing like nuance and is trying not to to be too binary about any subject and is willing to say, look, I can look at it from this perspective and I can look at it from this perspective and I honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the thing now to, to people just, just proclaim this, of course, this this group is bad, this group is good you know, and, or this action is bad and this action is good. And it's always seemed like a false dichotomy 
and uh, and I appreciate that you actually I see you a lot express this sort of fluid uh, okay with not knowing not that certain about any any damn thing uh, so easily <laughs> is that is that a conscious thing or is it just just that the way you experience things um, well thank you um, I appreciate you sharing that and some of that rings true from this side of the fence um, <laughs> Were you talking about social media in general where people we, we, we're describing the kind of uh, situation where people are uh, being absolutely right about things and not not you know always holding to their to their guns and never backing down? Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it I think it manifests a lot in political conversations, of course, right. but not not only. yeah. Uh, you, even when I see you talking about uh, Buddhism, awakening, meditation, consciousness, awareness, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you seem a little more flexible than some of some, you know, some voices that I see. Hmm. Um, we'll let them know that and uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell them if they want to come talk to me, I'll, uh, I'll spill the se- secret. Actually, I'll spill the secret now if I can figure it out um, yeah. <laughs> for free. Um, you know, while you were saying that, I was thinking, like, is that true? I think there's some, yeah, there's some truth to that um, that I see as well. I feel like there are plenty of times where I fall way short of my aspirations, you know, <laughs> on the sure. on a regular basis. So it's also true that I'm constantly, uh, <laughs> being, you know, showing my ass in the same way that a lot of people do on social yeah. media. Um, just depends on the kind of day I'm having, you know, uh, and if I'm in the middle of a fight with my significant other and then tweeting at the same time, you know, that's like <laughs> recipe for just <laughs> terribleness. <laughs> Yeah, or, yeah. How do you, yeah. What's the word? In, in the new, the new. Don't go to sleep angry. Is don't tweet angry. <laughs> nice, <laughs> like that. Um, but you know, I was thinking. You know, why would why would that be true if it were? And I think there's some there's some truth to it. Um, I'll 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 acknowledge that and uh, uh, own that. Um, I think some of it. I mean, there's there's two things. One is doing the podcasting thing for so long, and I think this is something you'll be able to relate to. Because having done a regular podcast where it's recorded and then shared publicly and really trying to have as real conversations as possible, knowing that it's not ever possible to record unless you secretly record someone, you secretly record yourself and the other person and forget that you did it. Um, (laughs) Right. You know, there's, you're going to be always, you know, I'm always thinking about who's listening. Right. um, And how do I change what I'm saying in response to that? reality and it's a vague sense with the internet it's like everyone's listening potentially yeah um and so it's really how do you how does one be a real human being in conversation hanging out with another human being potentially sharing thoughts agreeing disagreeing you know exploring not knowing asking questions all of that while also being a quote-unquote public figure in the sense that you're putting that out there for others to view and critique and you know, take in um, however they choose. And I think that's 10 years of doing that for me has led to a little bit more fluidity, perhaps, and transparency around how I present who I am in public. And I, I really, my goal is to cut the gap between this idealized self, that image that I have of, yeah. of me and that I want others to have of me um, at some level <laughs> that's very deeply conditioned 
and social survival. I know that one. <laughs> you know that one. <laughs> yeah. You you want to say something about it? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, no. It's, go on. Feel free to flesh it out because. <laughs> <laughs> I should have prepared for a, thera- a good therapy session, <laughs> diving deep into into our shit. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's it's no, it's um, it's something that um, one having having conversations in public in 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 some way. It's not always live or anything, but um, knowing that there's uh, there's always this hovering perspective of the listener who is varied and comprehensive, especially the the more the bigger the audience you have. Um, and then having these semi-public conversations on social media, yeah, right? Right, because it's it's exposed to the public. In the case of Facebook, it's sort of partially exposed to, to at least a extended network, unless you change the setting accordingly. But even on Twitter, everybody could see it. But it's mostly the people you are connected to directly, at least the first or second layer of that. Mm-hmm. And so there's always the potential of feedback and or criticism. Uh, but more people coming into the conversation, it's hard not to think about um, how what you're saying is presented or perceived. Um, and that's both perhaps good and bad, but I, I felt that there, it has been a positive uh, impact on, on the way I think and the way I, the way I talk about things. Although part of that, and that's the reason I really brought this up and wanted to sort of commend you to, to whatever extent that I can about the way you seem to handle this, is that because a lot of our conversations now are public, especially on social media, the chance for criticism is very easy. And so people, some people are becoming, I feel often fear expressing my opinion because between just getting a mob on you, I mean, God forbid you you say you criticize uh, atheism as a religion or something. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, there's even worse cases with people, uh, you know, with a lot bigger audience there than... Uh, than me or, or you, even you, mm-hmm. and that fear of sort of social backlash keeps people sort of from expressing what can seem like these days uh, controversial opinions, uh, even if they're not that bad, because we're not allowing people to just have opinion and then have a, a dialogue or a conversation where more of that needs to happen. So I'm trying to find the place between modulating what I'm saying and how I'm saying and just feeling free enough to express an opinion because I feel like some of these things are even crucial conversations to have because they're hard. Right, right. It seems like the, the really important ones always are go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and looping back to what you're saying, you know, there, there's, you know, I'm talking about this idealized self. Um, this to me is really interesting from a contemplative point of view, from a meditative point of view, because it is actually a an opportunity to see oneself social conditioning and this and for me the self is social hmm. you know the, the self is increasingly the case with the network networks that we're in but also always has been right. social to some aspect like we're made up of each other um, we hang out with people you know I noticed I hang out with some for a while even after this call I'll probably come off of this call and I'll start saying something that sounds kind of like you yeah um, you know mannerisms tones of voice we pick up so much from each other yeah uh, ideas for sure um, it, it's amazing and so to see the way that that self is being constructed and presented and um, the way that when someone attacks me I feel upset and I feel like I have to defend my ideas 
but over the top, you know, like if I did. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's, that is also really good ground for a contemplative, uh, you know, type awareness. Yeah. So that's not how I always treat it, but I, but I do see it as being part of my contemplative practice because everything is. Right, right. I like that. So speaking of your contemplative practice, I, I wanted to sort of ask you or try to do like this weird reset and hopefully it will, it will make sense. But if, uh, if somebody, if I were to ask you, you know, what do you do? And part of your answer is that I, you know, I teach meditation and my response is, oh, meditation, I've not heard of this. What is it? If somebody has no context about meditation, doesn't know about Buddhism, doesn't know about any of this, how would you answer that question? What is meditation? I, first, I'd be like, "Where have you been?" <laughs> <laughs> in a, ap- apparently, in a cave, but the wrong cave. <laughs> because I thought at this point everyone's heard of meditation. Um, I, it's it's funny that you say that. It's because I think I, f- I find that because it's such a known thing by now. Yeah. But people have different views or or sort of just a background understanding or thoughts or assumption about what it is. Then I I feel the the desire to do this kind of reset. Like if if you t- if you're talking to someone who doesn't know anything about it, how would you then describe it? Because I I suspect that that might be at least slightly different. I, yeah, I think the approach I would take generally um, is I would probably if they didn't ha- really have any idea of what meditation was, which I I have not found that person in quite some time. Um, to be honest, mostly people have ideas, like you said. And then it's a question for me of asking them, well, tell me what you think it is. Um, uh. Or in the case of someone who wouldn't know, I would ask, why are you interested? You know, what, what, is, it, what is it about meditation that you want to know? <laughs> why are you interested in, in general? And, and I take that approach because I'm, I'm not so much as interested in sort of infusing my view into them as I am trying to understand how they view meditation. And from there, I find there's a lot more interesting places we can go um, because then I can share my a view, but it would be it would be in that view would be in response and tailored to what I'm hearing and and what's relevant to them okay well i'm I'm gonna push back a little if you don't yeah. mind because because that's exactly that's what's interesting to me is that there is this you know I've heard a version of a kind of teacher student thing where you know, it's why did you come to me to learn meditation kind of thing, right? It's it's in the stories and it's all sorts of, uh, you know, it's a, a sort of concept that I've, I've came across. But you teach meditation, you do this, well, maybe it's maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't make sense to do to say that you do it regardless of people who come to you and ask to learn meditation. That's right. Um, it's not regardless. Yeah, you're right. Maybe I'm, I'm going down the, an incorrect path here. But I guess I guess what I was trying to sort of get at is without, you know, how, how would you introduce it to someone new to all of it that doesn't have a pen? You, he, they just asked you what you do and you say, I teach meditation. And so that's why they're asking you, not for any reason that has to do with them. I, I'd, probably say, I'd probably say something really uh, simple, like one sentence, and <laughs> I would stop talking about meditation. And I have done this many right. times. I, yeah. If there's not a real interest, you know, I'm not going to like... No, they're, I mean, especially when they hear a, a new word, they're curious. They're like, oh, what is that? I feel like this hypothetical right. person. You know? Yeah, it's a weird one. I don't think they're one. listening okay. to this podcast. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> definitely not this podcast. Um, all right. Well, well, let me... <laughs> uh, it's it's not, I guess it's not a fair question because when, when I do think about it, it, it is in perspective to how 
somebody sees it or why they would want to learn meditation, I guess I have a, I can't resist but wanting to to frame it or box it in such a way because as over the years, you know, since my introduction to meditation some, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, my understanding, my perspective of kept changing and expanding, but but everybody else who seems to be talking about it or teaching it or, or you know, thinking about it, um, it's one of those things that kept getting more malleable. And I like good, strong, like bounded definitions, mm. but it seems like it's just one of those things that it doesn't actually quite work for. I mean, nothing has that rigid of a definition. Yeah. And yet when we talk about things, when I say a dog, when I say an apple, it's, you know, it's a little easier. It's a little more bound. But meditation, I guess, is often compared to fitness. Mm. Um, but for me, that that metaphor breaks down pretty quickly. It does. It's types of practices to improve something about yourself in some ways. I mean, that's very kind of vague, but there always seemed like there is, I guess here's here's a, another way to look at it. Like what's been bugging me a little is all these, there's a lot of meditation apps and a lot of meditation frameworks that now throw a meditation for fill in the blank for everything. Mm-hmm. A meditation for sleep, a meditation for this, that, or the other thing. That seems, that doesn't make sense to me. Like you can, would you say, you know, a running for, you know, sleep or running for, well, actually, it's a little good. For me, but. <laughs> I, I think I'm just going to let you uh, work this one out for a minute. <laughs> Shoot myself in the foot. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean, though? Like it's what is, what is it about application and meditation to all these different things that bugs you? Uh, I think that it's not based in it doesn't seem based in in actual something or other. I don't want to say evidence or people's experience because people's experience can be like, well, if they come and they learn a meditation for x and they see improvement in x could be placebo it could be because of their intention what's the and what's the difference between placebo and intention how do those two those those might be the same I, I, placebo must have some mechanism and maybe intention is part of that mechanism maybe it's the whole mechanism yeah i'm not quite sure that's a really interesting question yeah yeah i mean that's the placebo on its own is, is one gigantic fascinating uh topic but i guess i, I was wondering perhaps if you see that it makes sense or you see value in applying meditation to almost anything. I don't think it's a cure for all for sure. And I don't think you do uh, necessarily. No. Um, but how, how, how far does your bound of what meditation addresses goes? Yeah. On the, so on the one hand for me, meditation um, includes everything because at the deepest end of the meditation pool, which doesn't need to be something people spend decades discovering they can actually discover this without meditating at all because it's something about being human i think (laughs) ultimately but at the deepest end of the meditation pool you know we're always conscious Mm -hmm. to some degree or in some way when we're awake we're conscious even when we're dreaming we often remember being conscious you're the dream dude you can (laughs) um and some yogis like way back in in the day and even contemporary have claimed that awareness continues throughout even deep dreamless sleep um, and so if their reports are to be believed, and I know people personally who've reported this, um, that I trust immensely, um, then, you know, there's something about working with, working with is not the quite, quite the right phrase, being conscious and being a human being and all that that entails biologically and culturally and societally, phenomenologically, you know, in terms of our inner experience, all of that is felt only and ever in our conscious experience. That's that's where it 
that's where it's known. So to me, meditation is really the inclination of mind toward shaping consciousness in one direction or another, or even toward allowing it to be what it is. I like it. And that would be maybe like the broadest I could go to talk about meditation. And so that, in that sense, you know, we can always work with being conscious um, or, you know, notice what's happening or work with our attention um, or open our hearts or feel our bodies or ask a question that brings us closer to something. You know, all of those things, which are, I consider meditative, mm-hmm. different, maybe different forms of meditation, but still all focused on consciousness and being consciousness being itself, being us, the world arising in our experience. All of that is meditation. Thus, meditation can be brought to bear on all of that. But uh, as one of my other uh, friends and teachers, Kenneth Folk, has pointed out, sometimes meditation is just not the right thing to bring to bear on a situation. It's not that it's not helpful to be a little more patient or notice what's happening in my mind when I'm, you know, dealing with a particularly difficult situation, you know, at work with a colleague, say. Um, we, but really, it might be more helpful to bring into some basic conversational, you know, skills <laughs> and be like, okay, what I hear you saying is X. Um, <laughs> what I feel is Y. <laughs> what do you hear me saying? You know, just like some basic <laughs> skills. Um, yeah. And in that case, I think it's possible. We also have to, if we're meditators, develop a kind of meta discernment about when and how to meditate. Right. And when and how to try other things. And that's just also part of being alive because otherwise we run around with one hammer beating everything. And a lot of people don't appreciate being beat by a (laughs) meditation hammer (laughs) or a spiritual (laughs) hammer or whatever the thing is that we we like. What do you think of that? Well, it seems that to at least a a certain degree, meditation is like this sort of meta skill and does affect all other skills like communication and things. Because like you said, the ability to reflect or awareness uh, you know, brings a lot to the table and at least, I mean, the first thing I can think of is like in combating our automated systems of like our um, reactionary habit or, or things like that. Um, but I, but I, do th- I, I do wonder about some, a description of instructions for, for mindfulness meditation that you once, that I've once heard, heard you give and I, I'm hoping if you can parse it. And this, again, this might sound like a silly question because maybe the question, the answer is obvious, but to me, there's something intriguing here. As you said, um, notice what you notice as you notice it. Yeah, that was my, that was my version 1.0 definition. Oh, you have a 2.0? 2. 2. Yeah, you know, definitions can change <laughs> in my world. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but it's close. Um, so the way that I describe mindfulness as, as you put it, as a meta skill and to me, mindfulness is a metacognitive skill, actually, mm. um, which is why they use the term mind in mindfulness. But it's really about, uh, it's the practice of noticing what you're sensing in real time. So before I was using noticing what you're noticing as you notice it, the problem with that is that the noticing, noticing as a way of knowing is an, an inherently cognitive knowing. It's a knowing that can parse reality. You know, it's like, oh, this is... When I'm noticing the breath, you know, what do I notice? It's cool. There's an internal image that arises with the sensations, the tactile sensations. It comes in fast in the middle and then it slows down toward the end. Okay, that's noticing the breath. I'm like describing it in conceptual terms. 
noticing what you're sensing, you know, when you sense the breath, like if you sense the breath right now, what do you notice? Or what do you sense, <laughs> rather? Well, if I have to describe it, then I would have to put it in similar terms. But I, I think you're referring to like the raw data, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the sen the sensation. So for me, mindfulness is the practice of noticing what you're sensing in real time. So there's a, there's a cognitive knowing, and then there is the more just kind of base level sensory data, as you put it, you know, just the, it's the actual, what it feels like for the breath to be touching the sensation, you know, the nose, not right. it's touching the sensation, it's touching the nose, you know, that's, that's sort of our additive. A second layer. It's a second, it's another layer. And, and to me, the mindfulness is when those two layers are working together in real time. And part of how I understand that is based on and kind of influenced by a neuro dude, I'm not even going to say what, neuropsychiatrist, I'm not sure his exact background, but a guy named Dan Siegel. Do you know Dan? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to pull up a little something from him. And I just caught a day-long retreat with my wife on mindful awareness, and we were looking at this. So. Okay, here's what Dan had to say. He said, there's a huge debate about what mindfulness is. Is it sensing or noticing? Intention on focusing on the breath, as an example of a meditation practice, requires differentiation of noticing versus sensing. You use the noticing circuit to disengage the distraction and then use the sensing circuit to re-engage your focus. So this was a distinction as I was using this notice what you notice as you notice it. I was at a, a mindfulness conference and I heard Dan make this distinction about noticing and sensing. And I realized, of course, he's right. Like there is a distinction between noticing and sensing and they're really it's a really crucial one. And so that's when I we changed our definition to include that. And I really like the point about it's the cognitive, it's the metacognitive ability to notice where our attention is and what's happening in the mind and what's happening in our experience to track that sort of a, a it's like a executive meta executive functioning capacity. But once we notice it, then we have to actually re-engage with the sensory experience of the breath. If we just re-engage with our idea of the breath, then we'll, lost, we'll lose it very quickly. Um, whereas if we just engage with the sensation, the actual experience that pulls our attention in, it's like we can actually get close to the sensations and feel them intimately in detail. Uh, and that actually, from a very simple like physiological level, feels really soothing, and it lets the rest of, the, of our biologies kind of relax mm. in my experience and I think in, in many others that try that exercise. So to me, that's the, that's the kind of the way those two play together and why mindfulness is so important of a skill. So do you, there's two things I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out. One of them is, is do you have the distinction of like consciousness and awareness or is one is that just info is, is pinging on this, on this, whatever, you know, multimedia screen <laughs> um and then and then being being aware or noticing that it's then it's actually hitting the screen um and and how does that overlay over the noticing or sensing and the other thing is when i was thinking originally at least in the variation of notice what you notice as you notice it i was trying to think of like well what's the alternative like what are you doing when you're not noticing what you're noticing or sensing well in that case i think people are often absorbed in the thinking process like in a way that excludes the rest of the reality. They're absorbed in thought mm -hmm. and in their stories about themselves and the world, as opposed to being in touch with the first person sensory, like raw input 
they're, they're stuck on that level too. Right. You know, or like a lot of the energy. And I, I point up to my head because that's where it's somatically felt when people are in their heads. Like it's <laughs> yeah. not just a saying, it's actually what it feels like. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you're really committed to including all of the sensory world in your awareness, then consciousness is no longer located in the head um, or you're not located in the head. It's more of a distributed somatic experience where identity becomes dispersed through, say it's decentralized through the field of experience. So what, what according to you, uh, uh, to your perspective, what does that do? Like, why do it? Why is that different, desirable, better, uh, beneficial? Well, I think some people are drawn to do this. Um, and I call those people contemplatives. And I think it's some sort of typological thing. Um, some people are more hmm. prone to want their biologies to be regulated in this way or to conform to the shape. And the reason I think that's true is because so many contemplatives I've met really begin exploring this stuff early without any formal instruction or introduction. It's just something they end up hmm. getting into. And that was my ca uh, in my case true as well. Interesting. And so I think some people are just more built to be contemplatives, so they tend toward that direction. Um, but even for people that aren't, I think it can be useful, you know, when they're feeling hyper-stimulated, which is sort of what it's like in the 21st century today, um, and the, especially for the mind to be hyper-stimulated, for the mental part of our thinking body to be always activated, um, screens blaring, concepts whirling through and i think for for people for whom that's true just to stop and relax if nothing else you know yeah it, it just lets them calm down a little bit like i was saying before and that can be just extremely useful yeah and I, and i think i've heard you say that you're not one of those people who who would recommend meditation for everyone right we talked about that on twitter yeah 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 definitely and and the the you know the uh, in addition to that of course the the warning labels that should come with meditation that not everybody um, mentions, but it does, you would still say that for the most part, or perhaps for a fair amount of people, being aware, being mindful, being a, more aware of the system as a whole is, can be preferable or is preferable to sort of being lost in thought or immersed in your story or something? All the time, yeah. Like being lost in thought, immersed in story, like perpetually. Have balance is... Yeah, like to just have a little bit of more of a balanced uh, experience. Yeah. And then some people take that really far. You know, they really want to know like how far that road of development will take them. And I've been one of those people, but I can see a lot of people way out in front of me. And, you know, I talk to people ideally that, you know, have something to learn from me when I'm teaching. But all the same, I see there's some people that like take it pretty far. Yeah. And that's interesting. You know, just like everything, humans take everything really far. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just part of what we do apparently. Yeah, and and so you you've been teaching for a while. You you've done the podcast for the longest time. It has died, got resurrected, <laughs> reincarnated. Yeah. Um yes, you've right. been teaching for a long time as well, but the the sort of recent uh incarnation of the teaching part is meditate.io. Yes. Which I find very interesting and I wanted to ask you about that because and and my perspective might not actually be part of the reasoning or the idea, but I'm, that's what I'm curious to sort of ask you is 
I've always wondered if, and again, this is a problematic hypothetical, but if somebody were to discover sort of somehow on their own the, you know, meditation and some of the occurrences that happen in meditation and uh, moments of awakening and insight, for example, you know, how would they describe it if they didn't have the language uh, of Buddhism? Because for me, obviously, a lot of this comes from these ancient traditions. And I think it also comes with a lot of baggage and some, you know, old centuries kind of stuff that I don't personally find useful. And I do, but I don't know always where to separate those. Yeah, it seems like, um, like, I was wondering how would all of these teachings or most of them would look in a modern language without a lot of like if somebody didn't didn't know or care for Pali or Sanskrit or all those kinds of uh, terminology as well, how would that look like? And is that was that part of the intention with um, Meditate.io? Yeah, sort of. Going back to your question about what would it look like for people to describe their experiences without having Buddhism as a vernacular, I think it's really interesting because even Buddhism, which, you know, when you go into it is many things and is informed by many streams of influence. It's already, even within the quote-unquote Buddhist tradition, these debates are happening because we don't always see eye to eye on what, say, something simple as the term awakening means. <laughs> yeah. And so, or enlightenment for sure, that's another, that, that one even more so. <laughs> you brought up the E-word, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love the E-word, it's my favorite. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like enlightenment is the chocolate to the vanilla of awakening, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on that side of the, the spectrum. I like it. Um, right on. I'm a chocolate guy, but so it's endlessly complex, is what I'm saying. First of all, even even to just sure sure get some clear conceptual distinctions within something that seems clear enough as Buddhism is hard, and I and that's part of what seeing that is part of what me catapulted me out of Buddhism, mm. um, even more so because I I realized oh a lot of my influences and in the way that I understand Buddhism and the larger frameworks that I that Buddhism. Uh, as practice and ideas are contained within are not Buddhist themselves. Like even if I look at my bookshelf, only 40% of the books on there, um, probably less these days if I really count it again, are Buddhist. Hmm. So obviously what I'm teaching already under the guise of Buddhism is already minority Buddhism at best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever Buddhism is, because then you have to go into those books and do the same analysis of every single one of them, um, see where their influences came from, all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And then you got to see, though, actually all of his influences were non-Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I do that analysis and I go, okay, well, who cares? Hmm. If I'm clear and upfront about what I'm doing and why, uh, that should be enough for the most earnest critics um they can of course disagree and not like my translations etc but you know i don't know that i don't know that what i'm doing is retranslating buddhism as much as it is finding words for what feels like an alive experience that engaging with buddhism has helped me cultivate uh or get in mm -hmm. touch with and that's with meditate io what both my teaching partner and I doing we we do think of it as as sort of a translation project you know of how to translate wisdom teachings many of them buddhist but also the mindfulness ones the ones that have already been translated into western modern culture thoroughly in from the from the analog world to the digital world that to me is the is where the translation project is right now um you know a lot of the teachers that I had went to asia studied with asian teachers 
had to kind of parse out what in the world <laughs> yeah. they were saying, <laughs> either by learning Asian, you know, by learning by learning different Asian languages or by um, you know, finding teachers that were really good, you know, spoke really good English or or just whatever, however they did that. And I'm grateful they did. Yeah. Um, because then now when I look at their teaching, I go, well, how does this apply to now? You know, how does this apply to the smartphone internet age? Um, you know, that to me a really is the big question. And that's what I think about more when I think about what languaging to use um, and how to translate concepts and, and how to change them too. Because to me, it's not just about trans, like when we translate, we change um, stuff. Right. Um, there's some, we're, we're going from one context into another already. And so there's already a shift in context. Um, to me, the idea that we can retain or preserve some essential truth is if that's all that one believes is happening, I think that's not true. Yeah. Um, I do think there is something essential which which we are trying to communicate. At the same time, it's sort of paradoxical <laughs> for me. Yeah, no, I can see that. There's there's a lot of aspects that I see from my vantage point about it that I actually and, and I I appreciate all of that. So there's the the attempt at reaching more people and um, conveying all of this and doing this all either just scalable or 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 through the the avenue of technology, right? Um, there is and, and in reaching a larger audience or more people, you want a language that's more universal. I'm not talking about just the words in English, but you know something that's more approachable or understandable. Maybe even less off-putting to some. I I don't know. And yet, not throw away everything by sort of washing it completely and not going full make mindfulness or you know so so generic and broad that it doesn't doesn't actually bring with you the 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 insight or knowledge or wisdom that you were trying to to sort of bring along mm -hmm. and it still seems like you you two are continuously informing what you teach and how you teach it from your own experience it's not just a translation it's not just conveying this thing that you heard and learned but as you keep progressing, as you keep sort of having experiences that inform what does any of that mean, all the things that I've learned together with what I've experienced, and how do I convey that today uh, as opposed to yesterday? Yeah, and I, I'd, I'd throw in there another layer for me, which is also how much I learn from the, the people and the students that I work with. I was about to mention that. Yeah, and how their experience changes um, my expectations about what this is, um, what language they connect with and not only that what languages they use it's sort of an embarrassing truth that you know it's like i learn more from my students than i teach them <laughs> <laughs> and and a thing i love is that you you two seem to you there's a lot of there's a lot of interaction with with the people who are learning from you you do these surveys you you sort of you see what people are interested in what they benefit from the most you know what they want to learn about and you keep sort of evolving constantly and refining uh, based on that. It's not like this decree that you're throwing from above. And I love that. I, I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the the age of systems is over. Um, we're you know we're looking for the perfect right system. You know whether it's communism or capitalism or Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. You know and and really we're like in the age of um, 
metasystems. You know, we're like learning how to navigate all these different interoperating systems mm. um, in the ne- in the age of the network. We're we're all all these systems are networked together, and we're networked together. <laughs> you know, through our own experience. You you don't think that people would just let's say let's say what evolves now in economy or something is like a hybrid of capitalism at the top and socialism at the bottom. Maybe that's already the case. And people would just bundle that and give it a new name and call it the next system. I mean, I, I, I guess that's always possible. To me, when I think about this, I do think there's a developmental aspect to it, you know, in terms of if people are given the right conditions where they're, which basically means they're challenged and supported enough and live long enough um, what I read from people like Robert Keegan, who's an adult developmental psychologist at Harvard, uh, or other others of his colleagues, like Suzanne Kreuter, another example, they, they seem to describe a, a process that happens for a large number of people where they predictably start to understand themselves and the world differently. And there's certain broad trends that like if you read multiple of these developmental psychologists you start to kind of get a sense that there's you know there's some broad commonalities Um, and if you read someone like ken wilbur who spent his whole career studying all these people and synthesizing them then you know you get a really cogent kind of perspective on that which i overall even years later after falling out of love with his work um, and still but still appreciating it i i still seems like it holds up so shout out to Ken Wilber. And, you know, to me, that's really interesting that there's a developmental unfolding, um, you know, that people continue growing after childhood. I mean, it kind of makes intuitive sense that we keep developing. Yeah. But to me, you know, I look at systems and meta systems in that light. And so I think that the, you know, maybe it's like the, the nascent edge of global human development has something to do with moving into these kind of metasystemic vantage points and not just philosophically, but in action, you know, action oriented, like how it changes, how people do things, you know, it changes, for instance, that, you know, if I were a systems level thinker, when you ask the question, what is meditation? I would start rattling off probably my system, (laughs) but that's not what I, I don't do that anymore. I, I get curious about the systems that are, that are behind your question. Hmm. You know, I get curious to hear where your question is coming from, the matrix that it's arising from, so I can know how to interoperate with it. And that's, it changes the response. There isn't a patent. There isn't a single response. There's all, it, there's, it is always evolving because there's always things we don't know about what's outside of us. That, that gives me a better glimpse as to why you answered the way you answered, or why you didn't answer my question, or my original question the way I expected you to. So I'm finally <laughs> finally understanding it better. That's great. Me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's and and again, my I I, I still value uh, Ken Wilber's work tremendously. I, it was really my introduction to almost uh, all of yeah. this, any and all of this. Um, Likewise. And uh, and I like the idea of you know the transcendent include um, as with the sort of evolution through through different um, structures and nothing sort of gets completely thrown away it gets incorporated as part of a more expansive more complex system if that makes sense yeah and and you know one one thing he really uh, wilbur pointed out that has stuck with me as well is that 
you know, there's, there's almost like these two different drives in humans. One is to transcend, you know, to go to like the next level, to progress, to, you know, go beyond. And then there's also the, uh, what you mentioned to the inclusion, which is from a Buddhist standpoint, you could say it's compassion. You know, if people are still suffering, um, even, you know, it doesn't matter how enlightened I am. If they're still suffering, then they're still suffering. And they are part of what enlightenment reveals to me is the internetworked nature of life and reality. And as a as a living, as an increasingly living experience, as an open sensitivity to the world. Hmm. And so the more one opens and can feel through what's happening and feel other people's suffering, if they're really if they're not closing down totally around it, which is itself the practice, but are opening to it and being with it. Um, and the the real practice is the response to suffering that you, you could say it's not just the transcending of limited identity, mm-hmm. but it's the it's the response to real suffering in the world. Um, and so that's the movement of compassion. You know, it's what can it's what the compassionate heart does. You know, it responds to suffering. It just takes care of things. No questions. I love that. Um, I'm trying to think. Does trying to sort of be in a meta system perspective. Does that ever feel ungrounded? Does that ever feel like... Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Push the interesting button there. there. Oh, yeah. It's totally... I mean, it's totally untethered. It's untethered from from the previous way of understanding, wherein one is looking for a system to explain everything. You know, a theory of everything, which is ironically one of Ken Wilber's book titles. Yeah, not believing that that's possible or true. Actually, that I'll I'll share the story of how I came to believe this wasn't true because <laughs> it's interesting. Okay. Um. There. So this guy I mentioned earlier, Robert Keegan, a developmental psychologist at Harvard, focuses on adult development. He wrote a book called Immunity to Change, and this was his practical book of how to actually see where you're developmentally stuck and to be able to kind of shift out of it, to shift the the stuck point. And I was doing this process, which is a crazy long process. I did it on a month long retreat. So I had nothing else to do but meditate and do this process. I did you know, maybe like an hour of it every night after. So my mind was very focused and clear, which helped. And, you know, it was like 10 phases or stages, and I, I, I can't even describe the whole process. But what was interesting about the process is that it kind of asked you to do something, and then it asked you to think about that thing in a different way. And then, you know, it was kind of like this mental, ju- you know, this mental jujitsu where you're going around with yourself. And at the end, the purpose of the what the process reveals is it reveals stuff that you hold as a fundamental assumptions about how reality is. I remember this now, yeah. And so for me, I looked at that list and there was like several assumptions. And some of them, most of them, I actually recognized as assumptions, even though part of me also felt like they should be true. (laughs) Did you know that feeling? (laughs) I'm like, I feel like this should be true, but I kind of know that it's not. (laughs) Um, But there was one sentence there that completely floored me and shocked me. Uh, and I just could not believe it. And it was, I assume that all paradoxes and contradictions should be resolvable, <laughs> should be able to be resolved. That's definitely an assumption that I, I hold in one way, one form or another. 
you no longer you you that doesn't no <laughs> that was that was so what so the this happened. This was, I mean, good eight years ago. And and what I did after that, just step by step. What what they what Keegan suggests, which is really interesting, is to not just try to overturn the assumption, but rather to do small reality tests to construct ways to test to see whether or not the assumption is true. Hmm. And so the way that I did this was to instead of sharing my immediate thoughts on what something was and giving like my download, you know, like I used to have this feeling if I, if they could just get it, (laughs) (laughs) then we, everything would be cool. Um, If they could just see the awesome meta system that I've constructed for them. (laughs) And instead of doing that, I, I started testing by stopping and asking a question uh, instead first before I, like led with my mm. my view and it's something that simple it was it it, it utterly revealed, revealed this other reality it was like oh my gosh the the woman that I, like works up in the you know graphics department um who i've never really talked to at all like she's this amazing wise being <laughs> and i just overlooked her entirely <laughs> You know, or thought like, if anything, she's this person that needs to like learn something from me. You know, how arrogant. Um, And that's like that doing that little reality test broke, broke. That was like the first, the first kind of breakdown of the, of the reality assumption. Interesting. And then it just continued to like snowball. And and really for me, it did get quite nihilistic and and, and difficult and groundless for some time. Um, And I think it's only really been in the last couple of years that I've started to come to a more hopeful and constructive relationship with all this. Well, that's reassuring because I've definitely, I definitely find myself dipping into the nihilism thing mm. when, when I feel like I can take just infinite perspectives and I don't really know what's true. Yes. But yet I still feel, I still have a hard time shaking and, and we'll, we'll stop if this gets too philosophical because there's just an endless road down here. Um, but I think we've talked about it a long time ago, just a little bit on Twitter or something, where I still believe that there is such a thing as the way things are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you, would you agree with that statement? Yes, except I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to conceptualize it fully. Okay. That's, I think that that's fair. Or, or you know, most, a lot of it is not knowable. And... And conceptualizing to whatever degree always removes something, always hides something, yeah. obscures something. And so yeah. as soon as we, we try to talk about these things, it's, it's problematic. And because we know that we don't know the whole picture even, yes. then being so certain about anything feels problematic. Yes. Yes. Because with a certain amount of probability, we're wrong. Yes. But you don't see. But you don't <laughs> even see approaching a hundred percent, depending on how broad we're generalizing. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Can all be a dream. Um, but but if if um, you don't see a, a a mismatch between saying that there there is such a thing as the way things are and saying that uh, not uh, all paradoxes and contradictions should be should be resolvable. Yeah, and I guess for me, the way things are. Another way of putting it is what is isn't resolving mm-hmm. it's un, it's unresolved um on the well it's it's both on the one hand complete as it is there's a there's a feeling in my in my own 
experiential sensory field of just completeness. You know, this is it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I experience that all the time. Um, in every moment, there's contraction, expansion, but there's a pretty reliable, steady s- state. I'll say state, although that's <laughs> problematic. Um, there's a steady state recognition of, oh, this is, this is, this is, this experience is happening, and it's okay. Um, basic level. Yeah. Uh, and and that's what en- enables me to relax, or br- you know, just like take a deep breath, or. You know, <laughs> <laughs> not hit the send button on that tweet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the other hand like you know as you're pointing to here it's not really knowable there's there's something we can't quite grasp and grok about this and when we do try to put it into words we fail and even this is so ineloquent and so insufficient of a description of reality because there's so much more right Right, and there's so much more that I don't know. Maybe we'll solve some of the problem of of limited language when we'll get to the nanobots in the brain mind meld, and we'll we'll skip like verbal language and just sense feel. <laughs> but but then we'll have the problem of having to understand artificial intelligence language, which they're already starting to. Speak Good luck to each with other that. In. Yeah. <laughs> like shit now we finally can understand each other but we can't tell what the hell the machines are selling us (laughs) oh boy that's what i mean by unresolvable because it's like even when something's resolved the resolution and the world that it enables brings some new irresolvable reality up right i mean i i do think that there is apparent apparently it's it seems to me that there is such so much complexity in this whole thing at least from our human perspective that it's there's only so far that we can go and and interestingly enough it is artificial intelligence that would allow us in some capacity to even handle a little more of the complexity that we could ever have or probably could ever do on our own perhaps Hmm. i don't know that's something we should talk to david chapman about yeah because he's, I would just mention David's work at uh, at Meaningness on Twitter um, and Meaningness.com because he's he's like to me on the cutting edge of, of exploring this, and he's also an AI ex- former AI expert. Yeah, um, you know, M- MIT trained uh, AI dude who's very pessimistic about the uh, potential of AI. Interesting, really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I'd be like curious to hear his thoughts on this yeah he's fascinating especially when he talks also about the levels of development and stuff and he is one of those truly like you said the cutting edge where half of the time i'm not sure i fully grasp what he's saying but when the moments that i do it's just like oh my god i just want to hear more from this guy um speaking of talking to interesting people i want before i want to get to the cryptocurrency stuff and your new podcast but i want just wanted to mention the the psychedelic buddhist um, sort of series that you're doing in the Medi- meditating on psychedelics. Meditating on psych- psychedelics. First of all, I I I love that you're doing it, and I think it's again one of those things that not everybody's feeling comfortable about talking. And within, I'm sure it seems from your from what you're saying, within the Buddhist community, there's there's one of those things that are controversial, or people fall into the I think the four groups. I found that very useful the way you sort of 
It was four groups, right? Do you like that system? Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> once once you broke it, I love yeah system. Bring it on. <laughs> They're useful. We still have to use them. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> and it seemed like a useful enough one. Like the even the division of how people seem to approach it was interesting. And the, my first reflection was, again, this goes back to something I told you in the very beginning that I like that you're by like leading by example, giving permission for people to talk about. Because I, I think when I first heard Joe Rogan talk about psychedelics in the open with like millions of downloads in, in, in public, fearlessly, it seems, I was like, how can he even do that? Is this is this allowed? <laughs> like, how? Right, right. Someone going to come and yeah. like pick him up in the middle of the recording yeah. and take yeah, him somewhere? I <laughs> Actually, I, I was in I was in Brooklyn rec- uh, like last weekend at this micro dosing uh, event um, that Duncan Trussell hosted, who's cool. kind of like a Joe Rogan yeah. character and also hats off to him for boldly continuing the conversation, which interestingly really began in the 60s and 70s. Um, the boomers opened this door big wide. Yeah. And Duncan Trussell's teacher is Ramdas, who was Richard Alpert, who worked with Timothy Leary in the original Harvard LSD studies um, and was a, such an important figure in terms of the countercultural movement and then be, you know, became an important spiritual teacher. So it's like a conversation that goes back, and it's, I guess, important for me to acknowledge all of the people who stuck their necks out talking about this stuff since that time and who were you know, openly willing to, you know, say that they Jack Cornfield comes to mind who's one of my teachers and he's been talking about this stuff for a long time. Oh cool. I didn't know. And and one thing I've I've really learned having this conversation, the meditating on psychedelics conversation, is that fifteen years ago the conversation really centered around especially when looking at Buddhism and meditation and psychedelics and those the intersection of those worlds. Um, you know, Buddhism is not it's a pretty conservative world in a certain way. Um, you know, like most religious traditions are, um, you know, and there's good sides and bad sides to that. Um, but 15 years ago, the conversation had to do with like, can we do this? Is this right? Is this wrong? Um, <laughs> does this violate the, what's called the fifth precept, you know, which is one of the sort of ethical or moral guidelines in Buddhist practice. Don't imbibe. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is translated differently and we have to, you know, of course, <laughs> back to the talk, translation. issues. Yeah. Back to the <laughs> translation issues. Um, but the conversation really has moved forward and really now for those that are, I mean, of course, a lot of people still have those same questions and those are questions I wanted to address as part of the series. Um, and I wanted to get different perspectives on that. And, and that's where the four camps came from that you mentioned. Um, you know, and so I essentially just recognize, okay, some people really think that psychedelics are absolutely wrong. And then some people for everyone all the time, and they shouldn't, you know, shouldn't talk about this stuff right. um, or should jail the people that are. And then on the other side, you know, people are like, oh man, psychedelics are always good all the time. You know, <laughs> your back hurts, take a psychedelic, <laughs> you know? your nose is running, you know, <laughs> snort some ketamine, that'll help, um, you know, whatever. And so... To, to me, you know, it's the middle ground that's more interesting, the people that are sort of tolerant but not convinced that it's a good idea, mm-hmm. per se, for, for everyone all the time, uh, and maybe not for, even for most people. Or maybe, in this case, in the Buddhist world, the tolerant Buddhists are ones that say, yeah, psychedelics can open the door, and then you have to walk through through real practice and discipline and, and like, awakening. 
Um, all, but psychedelics are not useful as a long-term thing. They're just good at, at, at sort of opening the initial door. Um, then there's another group who um, one scholar called the psychedelic Buddhist, Dr. Douglas Osto, and the psychedelic Buddhist, and I'm, 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 I think mostly in this camp most of the time, mm-hmm. psychedelic Buddhists think that, in fact, there could be a useful fusion or hybridization or, or coming together of um, psychedelic substances and Buddhist meditative methods right. and community. And so a lot of the conversation has moved to that question of like, how can they be useful? Or how, how can these things inform each other? rather what do they have to teach each other the psychedelic community the buddhist community um you know and 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 can someone actually could there be a new path which is actually an old path uh, it <laughs> turns out <laughs> yeah um where people are are combining those those two ways of exploring consciousness um in tandem yeah for me it, i mean we are starting to have the benefit of science being able to once again sort of explore some of these substances and get and be more informed at least on the physiological biological neurological side of these these effects and have a a broader perspective of what is actually happening right right um but in addition to that i think this is where this is where these sort of more rigid structures are can be a hindrance because for me it all comes down to what you said earlier about you know, consciousness and awareness and your mm. subjective sensory experience. Yes. And if if it has, and it obviously has influence on that, it has an effect on that in different ways. And to the degree that it, you know, it is influential, I don't care if it, you know, doesn't pass the law of, of you know, certain um, elements of Buddhism that say you just can't do this, right. you know. For me, this is or uh, U.S. It's, law. Yeah, or, 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 or U.S. law. Let's be real. Yeah, um, and and that's the thing where um, for me it's about I I do fall into the sort of pragmatic side of things, and I say, well, what does it actually do? What's the effect, and how do different people affect it? Because it seems it seems like two, people fall into two of more or less one or two of these camps um, out of just sheer assumptions and beliefs that they they're already coming with and then two other camps or, or maybe three of them are from experience whether of other people around them of or themselves yeah and you can sort of see the the, the slicing of those those groups uh, along those lines so it's it's I'm glad that more people are exploring it I'm glad that uh, science is kind of getting uh, more permission to to even look at these things because they obviously um, are very influential, for better or worse. Yeah, yeah, hugely. And you're right. Science is the thing that's broken this whole conversation open, both on the meditation side and on the psychedelic side. And that's where actually a lot of the convergence is um, in early brain scans of both advanced meditators and people using psychedelics. It's surprising how similar the brain scans are in terms of the the patterns of activation and deactivation. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's almost it's it's like you can lay them on top of each other, and you know, like you know, you, you're old enough to remember, you know, in school, or you had the you know the like the, the projector the and the, the, the slides. <laughs> you know, if you laid two of them on each other, you'd be like, wait, <laughs> what's the difference? Hold on. Um, yeah, <laughs> we just we just carbon dated ourselves. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's. Um... <laughs> Oh, the slides at school. Um, 
there was oh I uh, I saw a lecture I attended a lecture um, of this guy who basically went and did EEG recordings and and fMRI recordings of people in different psychedelic states right under influence of different psychedelics um, and one of the things that of course was striking to me is how similar I think he said the brain states of DMT and lucid dreaming are interesting which was fascinating. And so there are a lot of these examples with meditative states in different mm -hmm. psychedelics. And mm -hmm. um, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So, you know, there is a solidarity in just having the conversation with all these people who have sort of pioneered making it a more public conversation that I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're contributing. I'm, I'm you know, myself and at least in this format, trying to, to contribute and sort of open it up more because I think it's uh, it's useful. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to loop back to your point, too, about when there's a sort of pragmatic and clear understanding that, no, this, this stuff is useful, um, can be useful, seen it be useful, experienced it as useful. And the laws of Buddhism or, or the country that we're in or whatever say that that's not true. Then, you know, I think when laws are unjust, they should be challenged. Yep. You know, when they don't line up to people's actual living experience where they, they really uh, dampen people's capacity to grow and develop without hurting and harming each other. Um, you know, that's a kind of libertarian perspective. But I think it's, I think it's pretty damn well true um, yep. that, um, you know, th th there, it's, there again, you know, here we are social selves. Um, where, you know, in my case, I'm looking for, for ways of exploring consciousness, how self-centered could that be? Um, you know, a certain way it is. Yeah. Um, and then on, on the other hand, you know, that leads me to a place where I'm like, hey, like these laws are unjust. And of course, those laws are not um, those those laws and the the laws uh, condemning psychedelics, condemning certain drugs, also are intimately connected to racist ideologies and um, you know marijuana was a word that was used it was a translation of the term cannabis back to translation um it was it was used mostly by u.s lawmakers who were trying to make it illegal and to stigmatize it mm. um, because it was associated with mexican people and it was the mexican you know translation of cannabis and so like by using the word marijuana at that time in that cultural period of the 50s you know, it's like, that's like a Mexican thing. That's a bad thing. You know, like that's kind of the mindset. Um, and I mean, it's still the mindset in some places uh, in the White House. Um, but, you know, <laughs> sad as that is, it's true. And, um, and so, you know, for me, I feel like standing up against these, these clearly unjust laws are also standing up against that kind of ideological mindset, which fortunately overall has been waning out of power but seems like is having a last a hopefully a last minute resurgence that's how i interpret what's happening i'm hoping as well yeah that's perhaps idealistic and it's um you know when when these laws are are both are obvious to not be based in something that's that's true as far as we consider what we can know is true as well as not serving us and in fact, in some cases, like just, you know, the, the amount of people that are in jail for, right. you know, just ridiculous things, that is that that is injustice, like you say as well. I'm not just curtailing our freedom, but also really doing the, the exact opposite. 
of giving us uh, freedom, putting people in jail and other stuff, mm. then it's something we should fight a- against in, in any way that we can. Yeah, and it's easy for us because we're just, you know, podcasters. Yeah. So I figured, once I realized that, I was like, oh, this isn't that big of a risk, actually. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's totally worth it, and this life is short, so yeah. might as well join the conversation. <laughs> yeah, and it is a power in numbers kind of thing. I think yeah. we just have to speak up about these things. And we're breaking, we're breaking some sort of, you know, I think by talking about it openly, we break some sort of cultural trance where we like crack it yeah. a little bit. Every time we talk about it, the more free and open we get in talking about it. Yeah. I like it. And the more rooted that is in balanced, heartful, compassionate, considerate um, orientation, you know, that isn't just trying to sweep under the rug the fact that psychedelics aren't good for everybody, you know, and that everyone shouldn't be going around like tripping balls all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, like, you know, we'd have a, like, we'd be in, not in a good state, I think, if, if everyone decided to trip. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know that human society could survive that. Um, <laughs> It would be uh, problematic to say the Everyone least. would quit their jobs the next morning. We'd be like, uh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to bubonic plagues coming back. <laughs> we'll have one last big party and go out with a bang, you know? <sighs> well, um, I have just a few more minutes with you, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to <laughs> just at least touch, like at least mention your new podcast, Crypto Mind, and ask you, maybe even better yet, because people can listen to Crypto Mind, uh, but I wanted to ask about uh, the Lotus Network. Oh yeah, and and cryptocurrency. So how how much or to what degree or in what capacity you're involved in this? What what is the brief description of what that is? So um, so Crypto Mind that's a podcast that Ryan Olkey and I are, are doing together, and it's sort of an experimental cast. Like we're just kind of trying a few things and see yeah how people respond. I've been enjoying it so far. Cool. Okay, good to hear. That's yeah. one data point. <laughs> you know, I got into crypto. And, and particularly through Bitcoin, which is how most people get into crypto these days. In 2012, when one of my sites was stolen by a domain pirate in, U- in the Ukraine, in, uh, in Ukraine, and I, he ransomed it back to me in Bitcoin, and had to figure out how to purchase it and how to send it and how to make sure that I didn't get ripped off, you know, and how to use like a, a Bitcoin escrow service system, which amazingly existed then. Uh, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness, and went through that whole process and was like, oh, wow, that was a global, digital, frictionful, but could be frictionless one day exchange. And it, it something about it inherently felt like, oh, yeah, that's like another thing about our society that's getting digitized. Yeah. I uh, just had that quality to it. So from that point on, I, of course, got int- more and more interested in the space. Um, and then recently kind of re-interested at a... At, you know, beyond sort of just reading a little bit about it, I kind of really sort of deep diving into it again. And that's where Crypto Mind uh, came from. And and part of that, as you mentioned, is a project called the Lotus Network, um, which I'm currently advising. So there's three fellows. Uh, Anton is the CEO based in Thailand, in Chiang Mai. And these are Western uh, expats that are living there. But they're also like really into Asian Buddhism and practice and have a lot of respect for it. So they're interested in bringing, in broad terms, bringing Buddhism onto the blockchain um, or in, I guess, in other terms of like building a distributed platform for exploring, you know, Buddhist practice, Uh, maybe another way of talking about it. Um, But but they're interested in creating something that brings 
as I understand it, more transparency into the spiritual marketplace and more of a sort of what what's really interesting about the 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 Bitcoin and crypto world is that there's this sort of broad scale tokenization happening of different projects meaning that the project has creates its own tokens and in the case of Lotus Network they're called there will be they will be called karma yeah um karma coins or karma tokens or whatever and once you do that it opens up a lot of interesting possibilities of how to program with those tokens and 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 how to incentivize certain actions using kind of mic- like microeconomics um to nudge people um you know the guy that just won the Nobel Peace Prize for economics wrote a book called Nudge talks about how we can incentivize behavior through economics to nudge people in the direction of like practicing more or meeting with the community um, and getting value, you know, getting value out of actual face-to-face interactions, things like that, um, while also making those exchanges transparent in, in, in the digital record, also known as the blockchain. Yeah, it seems like one of the biggest, most, you know, obvious uh, benefits of having this this sort of public ledger yes. of the blockchain. Yeah, so instead of like, you know, money going behind closed doors to your spiritual guru or whatever, because there have been financial um, you know, crazy stuff. There, there, it just happens, you know, in, in, in that world. Um, and so it brings a little more transparency to that. Uh, I think that's the broad vision. And of course, to get from here to there is the real work. Right. And, and because so much is still being, being built out at a very fundamental infrastructural level in the crypto space. Yeah. It's kind of the wild west and it feels like it's all experiments yes including you know the lotus network and, and other stuff that's being done we just like uh, what was it yesterday i sort of discovered that uh, refined which was this bookmarking recommendation curation engine for yep. articles and stuff uh, i've decided to sort of again use this incentive system and and create uh, a token for their whole their whole system and in fact give a lot of it away by way of getting people to interact they're giving all of it away, actually. Yeah, yeah, One yeah. billion something. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating how, um, again, I think we're both big fans of the idea of decentralizing systems that we are now are becoming extremely obvious how dangerous they are or can be in in their current forms or when controlled by a small group of people or this sort of system that gets out of hand and takes its own kind of life and trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. And our next guest I'd like to have on Crypto Mind, which he's agreed to, but we haven't scheduled yet. It's a guy named Christopher Vitali, who wrote a book called Networkologies. Um, it's a philosophy of networks. Awesome. And I would love for him to talk about, he talks about three different types of networks, centralizing, decentralizing, and distributing networks, and those movements of networks. And the distributing network, which is kind of, when we think of the internet, it's a, it's it is a distributed network. There's some relationship he claims between the centralizing and the decentralizing that when you get the right balance of those, almost like the middle way, um, then then there's a sort of distributed system that emerges that's, I believe the term is metafragile. Like it's, it's kind of, um, it, it emerges on the tip of chaos um, and it's like the appropriate amount of chaotic uh, centralizing and decentralizing and, you know, those things being 
in conflict and harmony that creates some platform upon which this sort of metastable, sorry, it's metastable, not metafragile. Metastable. Yeah, that sounds... yeah that's, that's the opposite. <laughs> Met, that, metafragile, that's going to be something too, though. Um, <laughs> just throw meta on anything, it's going to be something. So anyway, that I would, it's so interesting to understand systems to me is like such an important way of like understanding everything now. Yeah. Because everything has become systematized. Right. And uh, that sounds fascinating. Actually, I, I look forward to, to hearing that, that conversation when that happens. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm curious what he'll we'll have to say about that. Well, I'm, I'm aware of the time and I should let you go. Yeah, thank you. This has been delightful. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad this has been this has been great. To me, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I, hopefully um, people who are listening will enjoy it as well. Um, and I'll put links to CryptoMind and Buddhist Geeks and Meditate.io and just all the things that you're involved in. There's a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things. That's, and, and, and that's the thing, uh, the, how I've been understanding that recently, and I uh, hats off to Thiago Forte, another uh, really interesting blogger, pod, you know, uh, teacher guy. Um, I've been really understanding all of those things that I'm doing as being part of a larger network of activity. Yeah. You know, it's not like the old, you do one thing and you just do it really well. Um, which at one time I thought if I'm going to be a meditation teacher, I have to just teach meditation. That's all I do. And I just become really awesome at that. But to me, is there something about being involved in multiple things that aren't directly or obviously related that inform each other in a sort of networked way that really enriches the whole system, you know, the whole ecosystem? Yeah, I love that. And that increasingly makes sense to me. And it's a something I'm, I'm trying to sort of lead my life in a, in a more increasing way as well. And I, I love seeing all the things you're, you're involved in and the way they're sort of getting put together. Likewise. This has been awesome. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. Yeah, keep up the good work as well. Thank you. Till next time. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can find any links and show notes at lastturtle.com slash six. And if you'd like to support this podcast, as usual, you can share it or leave a review on iTunes. And of course, if you can, you can go to lastturtle.com support to donate Bitcoin or support me on Patreon for as little as a dollar per episode. And that is much appreciated. Until next time, thanks for listening.